Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing? Good. My name is Mikey Stewart. Glad to be with you this morning preaching the word. Uh, I work for Veritas Church. I work with the Salt Company, which is the college ministry of this church. For those of you who are new, maybe not aware of that. I got a few pictures to give you a quick update. What we've been up to, we started uh, Somersault this past Thursday. We're going to be doing that for eight weeks A bunch of students came out. One of our residents, Chandler, he preached, brought the word. We had 100-plus students there. We did some connection groups afterwards. We worshiped right out here in the lobby, actually. And uh, it was great. Like I said, they got in connection groups afterwards. We grilled some hamburgers. So God is moving among these college students, and uh, they're hungry for the word. They're hungry to be in community, and we are glad as a church to be able to provide that. So on behalf of Salt Company... Thank you guys for being a church that cares about college students and being a great blessing to them, whether you realize it or not. Today we're going to be continuing through our series of Old Testament heroes, getting some guys some spotlight who don't usually get the spotlight. Uh, Ryan preached on Gideon a few weeks ago, Mark taught on Samson last week, and today we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be looking at a dark time in the history of Israel looking at the life and reign of a young King Josiah, one of the very few uh, good kings who ended up actually purging Israel of evil and bringing about holiness. So in the reign of King Josiah, the reason I said it's a dark time is because in the reign of his grandfather Manasseh, the word of God has been lost. So these people have no idea what God has asked of them. Uh, His terrible grandfather reigned for 55 years, But God uses Josiah, brings about the word of God, and when Josiah comes in contact with the word, everything about his life changes. So quick context before we dive right into the story. Uh, The books of 1 and 2 Kings start with King David, who you've probably heard of. He united all the tribes of Israel into a single tribe, or into a single nation. His son Solomon would then rule over that nation, but then Solomon's son ended up leading a split in the nation. And then we have the northern territory of Israel, and the southern tribe of Judah. You guys may have heard those names before. So many different kings come from these, uh, this line of tribal split. Most of them are bad, but a few are good. And without a doubt, the worst one ever to rule for Israel was the grandfather of our main character. His name was Manasseh. So that leads me to our first point. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be looking at what a world without the word looks like okay and so when I mean a world without the word I mean it's not a part of your life whether you reject it whether you don't know it's there what does a world without the word look like and the first thing we see is in a world without the word idols are worshipped in a world without the word idols are worshipped so if you're living in a world without the word to lead you in righteousness in holy living, in true wisdom, in absolute truth, one of the most natural things that's going to happen in your life is that idols are going to be worshipped. It's a natural consequence of living without the word. And when I mean idols are going to be worshipped, what I mean is that something other than God is going to be worshipped, sacrificed to, maybe your money is spent on it, uh, your energy, your time. That's what I mean when idols are worshipped. So back in the day of our story, there were plenty of things that you could be worshiping. And 2 Kings 21 gives us an account of Manasseh. 
the man who worshipped pretty much all of them. He hit everything under the sun. So 2 Kings 21, starting in verse 2, it's going to be up on the screen for you. It says this. He, Manasseh, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed, and he reestablished the altars for Baal. He made an Asherah, as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple, where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where I'll put my name. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. He sacrificed his son in the fire, practiced witchcraft and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. Verse 16 would also go on to say that he shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to another. To say the very least, the reign of King Manasseh was not good. Terrible, terrible time in the history of Israel. And we would be absolutely appalled if we witnessed even half of the things that this king did. And this king is leading, remember, the chosen people of God. These are supposed to be a people set apart, an example to the rest of the world. But if you're living in a world without the word, which, by the way, we believe that every word is divinely inspired in this book, completely true, without error, and holds everything you need to live a life of holiness and find out what salvation is. Okay, but if you're living, if your world does not have this in it, does it make a little bit of sense why Manasseh was such a terrible king? Can you really blame him all that much? If you don't have the word, where are the guiding principles for life? Where's the objective truth? Is there objective truth? And if there is, who gets to decide what it is? I mean, he's the king after all, so does he get to decide? What if Manasseh says, child sacrifice is not wrong, I want to do that. In a world without the word, idols take the place of supreme authority in life simply because something always has to. Something is always going to take the place and get the final say in your decision making. And if the word isn't supreme, an idol will be. Now today it looks much differently. If you came up to me after the service and you're like, hey dude, I want you to come over to my house. I got something I want to show you. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. So I go over to your house. We go into your room, open up your closet, and you pull out like this altar box thing. There's like stars and galaxies painted on it. And you're like, watch this. And you just like start bowing down to it. I would be really caught off guard. I'd be like, dude, what are you doing? You're bowing down to the, to the stars. What are you doing? It would catch me super off guard because we don't worship idols like that anymore. Right? So you can, it's easy to look at this story and be like, well, that's silly. Why would he bow down to the stars? So maybe it's not actually bowing down to something. It's a lot more subtle nowadays, I think. Perhaps it's materialism, right? And, and your altar is the, the cash register. You're checking out. You can't help but buy more stuff. The next thing will make me happy. The next thing will make me happy. Maybe it's relationships. This next person will make me happy. Maybe it's pleasure or comfort. You don't do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. It, could be, it doesn't really matter. The point is, if the word isn't guiding you in your life and pointing you to the fact that God is the only God who should be worshipped, 
an idol will be worshipped. Okay? Without the word, idols will be worshipped. That makes sense? Second point. In a world without the word, the blind lead the blind. Okay? In a world without the word, the blind lead the blind. Psalm 19.8 says, The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So just because uh, something's there and it's dark doesn't mean that thing is not there anymore. It means that once the light hits that thing and hits your eyes, you can now finally see it. It was always there, but the light allows you to see what was already there. And continuing the legacy of Manasseh, God is promising the Israelites through David uh, that he would give them the promised land with a stipulation. So we go to verse 8 of chapter 21. God says, I will never again cause the feet of the Israelites to wander from the land I gave to their ancestors if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, the whole law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. Here's why. Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So clearly, what the Bible here says is that there is one person who's more culpable, who's more to blame than anybody else, and that's Manasseh, because he caused Israel to stray. And Jesus encountered a sort of similar situation when he was walking on the earth doing his public ministry. As he encountered the Pharisees, he said some things that offended him. His disciples were like, hey, Jesus, you just offended the disciples. And he says this, he says, they're blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, while the Pharisees are not near as explicitly destructive as Manasseh was, I wouldn't dare say that, both of them had a common struggle in that they did not cling to the word as the first and foremost importance in their life. Okay, while Manasseh just gave himself over to anything that he pleased, the Pharisees started to value tradition and their rules and keeping the law more so than what the whole point of the word was trying to get at which was to love God and love your neighbor. Okay, the word of God has power to give light to the eyes, to open blind eyes. Many of you in this room have had this experience where all of a sudden you start reading the Bible, you get into the scripture, you see what God has to say, and your heart lights up. You feel joy, maybe for the first time, real peace. You feel that there's actually hope for the world because God has a plan. This happened to me a long time ago. I was 14. I remember I was going into my freshman year of, of high school, and for whatever reason, I went to a Christian camp, big camp guy, came back, and uh, for whatever reason, started reading the Bible every single day. It started off with just one chapter, and by God's grace, it has just been a regular, probably the most regular part of my life was just getting in the Word. Why did I do that? Because I'm super disciplined, and it was all by my strength. No, because I found that the word gave light to my eyes. It was true. I knew it was true. When I started reading it, many of you have had a similar experience. A world without the word is dark, and the blind lead the blind. Third thing we see, the last thing we see from Manasseh's life, is that in a world without the word, wrath is inevitable. Now, give me some time to explain this one, but in a world without the word, wrath is inevitable. From the prophet's mouth comes 2 Kings 21, verse 11. 
They say, since King Manasseh of Judah has committed all these detestable acts, worse evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done, and by means of his idols has also caused Judah to sin, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I'm about to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. Okay? So, wrath is inevitable because sin cannot go unpunished. And without the word, you have no idea how to escape this wrath that is inevitable upon your life. So just because Manasseh might have been ignorant of the commands of the Lord does not mean he was off the hook. Okay, if he was here and he's like, I think child sacrifice is okay, it's what I do, it's how I worship my God. We would say, that is wrong and something needs to be done. We know deep down, and I would argue he knows deep down too, that something needs to be done. You can't sacrifice your children in fire. That is wrong. That is sin. Just because he might not have known that doesn't mean he's off the hook. If you go out of service today and you go to, go to your car and you see somebody there with a baseball bat and they're smashing in your windshield as you go up to it, you're like, hey, first of all, please stop. Second of all, what are you doing? They'd be like, what? I'm smashing car windshields. I love doing this. You're like, you can't do that. That's wrong. They're like, why is it wrong? I've never heard that it's wrong. I like doing this. I do it all the time. You say, I don't care if you like doing it or if you do it all the time. You need to pay me because you broke my windshield. That's my property, right? Nobody would just be like, oh, wait, you do this all the time and you like it? Sure, just do that car next, right? Nobody would do that. Now, a fair point you might ask is like, isn't not knowing you shouldn't break a windshield a lot different than not knowing everything in this book? It's a big book. There's a lot here. You really think everybody should be held accountable for all the words written in this book? Good question. Great point. But I would push back a little bit and say that the Bible many times says that though someone may not know what's in the word, they might not have a copy of scripture, they may not have read everything, it doesn't say that we're off the hook. Okay? The word is still alive and active the Bible actually says it's written on our hearts that we know right from wrong and that there's a standard. Everybody knows I should probably be living a certain way and I'm not doing that. I have a few verses to help clarify this. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Ephesians 4.18 says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So, to be very clear, although the word was missing from Manasseh's life, his culpability, his, his guiltiness was not missing. Okay, And I would also say he knew what he was doing was evil. You don't sacrifice your, ch- your child in a fire and think that's okay. Now, he might have gotten to a point, like Ephesians 4 said, where his heart was so calloused and he was so suppressing the truth that he no longer felt bad for it, but it was still wrong. So I'm kind of purposely leading you to ask the question, well, isn't wrath coming for everybody too, not just those who have the word? I would say absolutely. Wrath is still inevitable, whether you realize you're guilty or not. Okay, without the word, 
there's no knowledge of how to escape this wrath, but it's still coming for everybody. We all know we are guilty, that we need an escape. We need somebody to pay the price for our wrongdoings and lead us. We need something to help lead us into righteousness, peace, hope, joy, okay? I just painted a pretty dark picture. The world without the word. It's not pretty. If I could sum it up, I'd say, in a world without the word, anything goes. Anything goes. And that's not a world we want to live in. It's dark and hopeless. So, let's move on to Josiah and look at a world with the word. What does a world with the word look like when you embrace what God is telling you, what the plan he has for your life? What happens? The first thing we see is that conviction, grief, and repentance follow. You welcome the word into your life. What's going to happen is conviction, grief, and repentance will follow. So after the reign of Manasseh, his son, Amon, takes the throne for two years, and it's just two more years of the same. He's also terrible. He ends up getting put to death. And then the eight-year-old boy, Josiah, becomes king. He's eight years old when he becomes king. Do we got any eight-year-olds in the room or close to eight? Boom, there. Can you imagine being king, Max? Yeah, you can imagine it. <laughs> Me too. I think I see it. Yeah. What I want to say is that he was a young boy and he decided to follow the Lord. The Lord's hand of blessing was upon him and he followed the Lord. He didn't turn to the right or left and he pleased God. It's never too early to start reading the word of God and doing everything you can to obey him. Okay, but in the 18th year of this king, so he's 26 years old. He determines to repair the temple of God. He sees that it's been destroyed, and he's like, I want to go fix it. So he sends some of his servants to go total up the silver to pay the workers to repair the temple. And as he sent his servant, uh, he stumbled across a scroll, a book that has been lost for who knows how long. He picks it up. He realizes what this is. This is the word of God, probably the book of Deuteronomy. This is the law and so he brings it back to the king and reads it to the king. Every single word. 2 Kings 22, starting in verse 11, says this. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, and the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant Isaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me the people in all Judah, about the words in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything that's written about us. Okay, so he tears his clothes. He hears the word for the first time and he shows a great amount of humility and tenderness before God and his word. In Hebrews 4.12, many of you have heard this, says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So maybe some of you have come in contact with the word. You felt convicted in your gut. You maybe didn't like the feeling. I would say, good. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. The word is sharp. This is what happened to Josiah, too. And he feels convicted, but notice what he does with this conviction, okay? He doesn't justify his sin and say, well, God, we didn't know. We had no idea. Look, the word was lost. He doesn't negotiate with the Lord and say, 
all right, well, now that we know what it is, you know, we'll try and follow it our best. He doesn't try and reinterpret the word to fit a lifestyle that he already had. He simply listens to what God told him and obeyed. Okay, he put the word above him and said, this actually has more truthful things than I can think of myself, and I am under this word rather than the word being under me. Okay, it takes humility. What I want you to take away from this point is that it takes humility to encounter the word of God and not fight back. Not try and negotiate with God. To see your sin, see what the word says, that you are guilty and in need of forgiveness and grace, and accept that. We would do well to have the same response as Josiah. He tears his clothes in signs of repentance, which means that he turned his actions. He wasn't going to live like he used to anymore. And he humbles himself before the Lord. And the Lord is pleased with that response. Okay, second thing we see in a world with the word. What happens? Obedience is expected. Come in contact with the word. You invite it in your life. And obedience is expected. It's like the standard operating procedure. God says something to you. You don't have to do it. You get to do it, okay? It's fun. Here's what Josiah does. He gathers all the elders of Jerusalem, and in 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 2, here's what happens. Then the king went to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people from the youngest to the oldest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, that had been found in the Lord's temple. Next, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people agreed to the covenant. So I want you to imagine, Jeff Dodge comes up to me and he says, hey, Mikey, uh, Teresa and I, we're gonna go on vacation for a couple weeks would you mind watching my house? And I say, yeah, of course. I'd love to watch your house. I'm really excited about it. I say, all right, sweet. We're leaving tomorrow. So he uh, goes on vacation. Let's say that night I go to my connection group, okay? And Dale, my leader, he's like, all right, guys, any updates for the week? And I go, yeah, I got one. I feel really great about this. I feel pretty honored. Jeff asked me, would you be willing to watch my house? I'm like, isn't that awesome? Everybody's like, whoa, cool. I go, what do you think he meant? And they're like, somebody's like, shoots up their hand. I'm like, yeah. Somebody's like, I think what he meant by the word watch was like once a day drive by and just look at the house. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good. Somebody's like, no, 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 no. To me, to me, what Jeff was saying when he said watch was like, you need to be in the house 24-7. You can't leave. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. And everybody starts giving me their ideas on what they think Jeff meant and what to them it meant that Jeff said that to me how special that was okay and then I leave connection group the two weeks go by the grass gets long the mail's pouring out of the mailbox the bread's getting moldy and what I missed the whole point Jeff wasn't asking me to just like feel honored. He was asking me to actually watch and take care of his house. And Josiah does basically the exact opposite of what I just said. He hears the word, 
And he does the word. He obeys immediately. Didn't take his time, didn't negotiate, didn't ask anybody, hey, what do you think this means? He got to it. He started obeying. He gathered everyone and made commitments in front of them, and they agreed to the commitments, and the Lord was pleased with this response from Josiah. One more thing to note about this covenant renewal that he did. He gathered everybody, and he read all the words that he found out loud. Everyone heard all the words. In a room this full, I bet there's a big chunk of us who've read all the Harry Potter, all Lord of the Rings, great books, don't get me wrong, all The Office, you've watched every episode, great TV show. You've studied long and hard for school, and we haven't read every single word that God breathed out for us, that he gave to us. Now, if the word of God were just another story that you could pick up from Barnes & Noble, just another series like Harry Potter, I'd say, okay, who cares? Who cares if you haven't read it all? It doesn't matter. If it's just ink on pages, I don't care if you haven't read it all. But if you, like me, would say, this is the inspired word of God, I believe that every word has been breathed out by him, then why have we not taken the time to read every single word? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm just trying to get you to think about how special this is and how often we neglect it. So you want a very practical application or challenge? Here it is. Read the whole Bible in a year. I'm convinced anybody, anybody can read the whole Bible in a year. It takes like three chapters a day. You can read the whole Bible straight through. They say at a pulpit pace. I don't even know what that means. But in 72 hours. You know what that breaks down to? Less than 12 minutes a day. So if you've got to set your alarm 15 minutes early in the morning to get your reading in, do whatever it takes. And by the way, if you miss a few days, that's okay. You don't have to quit if you are a week behind. Just master the restart. Never stop starting over. Get through the word. Read every single word. And if we do this, like Josiah did, One of the natural consequences of keeping commands and reading it daily is that it spreads, okay? People talk about the things that they're learning and thinking about and doing. This is exactly what happened in the nation of Judah. Here's our third and final point for King Josiah. In a world with the word, reform happens. Reform happens. And what I I mean by reform is life change happened throughout the entire nation, everybody's lives started changing. I'm going to just blow through a few of the reforms that Josiah instituted. He, the articles for Baal, Asherah, and the stars, he burned them. He got rid of the false priests of the false gods. He tore down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. He tore down the child sacrifice altars. He destroyed the horses and chariots dedicated to the sun. He, he did a bunch more stuff. I'm not even going to read it all. He did a bunch more stuff. Chapter 23 is basically describing all the things Josiah got to work in doing and the reforms he brought to Israel. And verse 24 says this, that he did this in order to carry out the words of the law that were written in the book that the priest Hilkiah found in the Lord's temple. So all the reforms were a response to the word that he found, to the special word of God. Now, I'd be a fool 
to just say, all right, guys, get out of here and be like Josiah. Just read it and obey. It's easy. That would be a disservice to you. Josiah made a lot of enemies doing this. He destroyed people's livelihoods, their businesses, their source of income. He destroyed their religion. So you would, you would assume people didn't take his reforms very easily. He probably made a lot of enemies. It took a lot of effort and energy to obey the things that God told him to do. So I've been married for almost three years now. And I have the secret of what it takes to have a perfect marriage. What's funny? You, you guys, you don't want to know? You want to know the secret? I got it. Dudes, if you're taking notes, here it is. One piece of advice. Listen to your wife. Listen to your wife. Now, there's my advice. There's two ways you could take it. You could hear the words your wife is saying... Do nothing about it. Check it off your list. Happy and healthy marriage, here I come, right? Wrong. That's not what I'm talking about when I say listen to your wife. You'd be missing the whole point if that's the way you took my advice. What I'm saying is listen to her. Shut the computer. Put down the phone. Put forth some energy and effort and hear what she's saying. Listen. Think hard about what she's saying. Why? Not because you can check it off your list and say, all right, I did it. No, it's way more than that. You are loving her by doing that. You're putting forth effort to strengthen the relationship, to be one, to be in good relationship with your wife. And reading the word is very similar to that piece of advice. Okay? You're not just, when you open up the word, Let's say tomorrow morning, I hope you open up the word and read it. If you just see the words and close it and don't do anything or remember anything, you miss the whole point. That's not what I'm saying when I say get in the word. What I'm saying is think about it, meditate about it, let God speak to you. Why? Just so you can read some words? No, because it's shaping you into the person that God wants you to be, the person he's asking you to be, a person fit for the kingdom of heaven. So if I haven't said it enough, I think I have, you need to read the word. You need to value the word like Josiah did. Welcome it into your life and watch as sin diminishes, humanity thrives, and God is ultimately glorified. And I want to land with what I think is the greatest act of obedience that Josiah did. I haven't talked about it yet. It's in chapter 23. Verse 21 says, The king commanded all the people, Observe the Passover of the Lord your God as is written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was observed in Jerusalem. First year of his, of his reforms. The Passover is observed. Why is this significant? This was an Israelite tradition 
that took time to remember every year the deliverance of God when he brought the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom and life. So God said, hey, I'm going to command this angel of death to sweep through the camp, but I will pass over you. This angel of death will pass over you if you slaughter a perfect animal and you put the blood on your doorpost. Then when the angel of death comes, he will pass over you and you will live. And every year they were commanded to remember this, what's called Passover, and remember what God did for them. It was a time to be grateful and thankful. It was a time to be strengthened in, in communion with God in order to obey him in the future. And this observance had been missing from the land for who knows how long. And Josiah reads, you're supposed to do this, so he brings it back. And Jesus Christ, as he's walking on the earth, he's finishing his public ministry, he's about to die. He too is observing the Passover with his disciples. But he changes it up, he takes it to the next level, and he says, take this bread, break it, and eat it, for it represents my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup, gave it to him, said, drink this. It represents my blood, which is shed for you. And like Passover, he too would be put to death and killed, but he would also rise from the dead three days later. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, just like the Passover, is covered by his blood. His righteousness is now yours. And the judgment of God has passed over you and has fallen on Jesus Christ. The debt has been paid by him if you put your faith in him. And you too will be passed over from death and judgment for your sins, and you will live forever with him, with his righteousness. And just like Josiah obeyed by observing God's great provision for Israel, today, Veritas, we are going to obey, we're going to take communion together, and take time to remember God's sacrifice for our sins and the love and forgiveness he offers us. We're going to obey by remembering Obey by thanking Jesus, taking the time to think about what he did. So the way we do it here at Veritas is we have tables here up in the front and in the back. There's gluten-free back by the sound booth right back there. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have put your faith in him, I would invite you to come to the table, take the bread and the cup, take time to remember the great deliverance and provision he did for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the word that you've given us in Scripture, Lord, the Holy Bible, the copy that we have such easy access to in order to find out exactly what it is you want from us, how you want us to live our lives. Lord, it, it involves every single area of our lives. What a gift it is that we have this, Lord. I pray that Veritas Church will be a place that values the word above all else, that we run to it daily, that we don't open it up, let our eyes glance across the words and close it, 
but that we will be hearers and doers of the word. Lord, I'm even more thankful for the word come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, that he made his dwelling among us, that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Lord, what a great mystery that Jesus Christ is the word. We're thankful for him, for his sacrifice, and for time of communion, Lord, where we can remember the forgiveness we have in you as we take the bread and the cup. May you be glorified by our lives, Lord. Make us a people who love your word.